I'm Elaine. I'm Dan, and welcome to Sublime True Crime. This week, the story of Chantelle Taylor. And this is one that you've written this week, Elaine. So why have you chosen this case? Um, I think I've chosen this one because it's very local to where I live. I actually remember this unfolding as well for me. So this is the story of Chantelle Taylor, who had disappeared, basically. Mm. She'd just vanished. Nobody knew where she'd gone. There was a, a big hunt to try to, to locate her, and she was a missing person. And then I remember the story unfolding, not to give anything away, but I remember the, the, the discovery unfolding of what had gone on. Um, I just think it's a really interesting story. And um, I think well, once I started researching it initially, the story, I was just blown away by her family and their dedication to her. Chantal Taylor was born in January 1977, one of five children in a happy, boisterous household. Her parents, Jean and Tony, had two children together, her and her brother Stephen. They also had three step-siblings from her mother's first marriage. She loved school and was a popular, cheerful girl. With curly blonde hair, bright blue eyes and a bubbly personality, she had plenty of friends and dreamt of being a beautician after school. Chantal met and married her first boyfriend, Paul, and had three children who she doted on. But things started to go awry when her brother Stephen, who she was especially close to, was murdered. His ex-girlfriend, Elizabeth Margaret Patterson, also known as Betty Patterson, went to his property following a party in the year 2000. She injected him with a lethal dose of diamorphine while he slept. Elizabeth was sentenced to three and a half years in jail after pleading and being convicted of manslaughter. That's nothing, is it, three and a half years? It really isn't. This loss seems to have triggered a downward turn in Chantel's life. I'm not surprised. Can you imagine losing your brother like that? Yeah. I can't understand how it's manslaughter. What was she hoping to do? Just give him a high or keep him asleep or what? Honestly, not sure. From when I was reading around this, it sounds like they'd been dating, I think, casually. And then he had finished with her because she was getting overly clingy. And she didn't take that well. And apparently he'd had a party and afterwards people were leaving and she turned up and a friend who was going out the door let her come in as they were leaving. Mm. And she found um, Stephen asleep on the sofa and had injected him. Now, what her reasoning was, obviously we'll never know. That's um, ridiculous, isn't it? That, that's certainly from what I... Obviously that's very much simplifying it, but that's what I understand to be the case. It was following the death of her brother Stephen Crofts at age 31 that her marriage to Paul collapsed and she spiralled into a deep depression. It was at this point that Chantal started to use heroin and her life started to fall apart. She was soon a heroin addict and started to shoplift in order to buy the drug. She was soon banned from the city centre. With her ability to make money from shoplifting curtailed, Chantal turned to prostitution to fund her habit, frequenting the red light district to look for business. After she was arrested for shoplifting yet again, the decision was made that her son and two daughters should be cared for by their grandparents. She was released from jail and went straight back to the red light district to start looking for sex work again. She was only 27 years old when she disappeared in March 2004. She'd been sharing a house in Newling Street, Birkenhead, with her boyfriend and another girl when she failed to come home one night. The housemate had contacted the police with her concern for Chantelle's safety. Her worries were brushed aside by the police though, as they assumed she was just with a punter. The girl then approached Chantelle's mother, Jean, in the street and raised her concerns with her. Chantelle had left her home to buy cigarettes from a nearby petrol station at 1.45 in the morning of Saturday the 13th of March. She was last seen wearing a black leather skirt 
brown boots, cream top, black tights and a black leather coat. Jean went out searching for Chantelle night after night, checking the red light district and shop doorways looking for her daughter. She put up posters across the Wirral and Liverpool, hoping to find Chantelle. Jean registered her as a missing person and got her face on milk cartons, fruit machines and TV displays in the shopping centres locally. Um, I believe as well that she, she literally searched all over the country. Quite yeah, you were saying, because you researched this and you were saying that um, she's um, a woman on a mission, it's fair to say. She, she's, she sounds amazing from all that I've read about her. Um, she, she was not going to give up. In August 2004, police divers searched the River Mersey and detectives also checked the local Camelaird shipyard and other derelict buildings while searching for her body with no success. Her case was featured on GMTV's Christmas Appeal for Missing People. There were occasional sightings reports of Chantelle in both Birkenhead and near the Walton Road area of nearby Liverpool and this led police to believe that she was just a missing person. So although they were searching the river, they weren't 100% committed to the idea that she was dead. Mm. One person claimed to have seen her safe and well at 9.15am on, on March the 22nd in Oxton Road in Birkenhead, which is pretty close to the area to where she lived. The trail went cold. That is, until June 2005, when two men were arrested on suspicion of the murder of Chantelle Taylor. The men, a 51-year-old and a 30-year-old, were both from the Birkenhead area and were arrested by police on Tuesday the 21st of June 2005. They were released on bail two days later, pending further investigation. We're going to leave Chantel now, as well as the two suspects, so we can focus on Stephen Wynne. Attending the same secondary school as the bubbly Chantel was Stephen Wynne. We don't know anything much about his childhood other than this. At some point he joined the army, and Stephen served in the Cheshire Regiment of the Armed Forces, but he was discharged after testing positive for smoking cannabis. We also know that in 1997, age 19, Stephen was living in Euston Grove, Birkenhead, when he ended up before a local magistrate. He was found in the Grange Precinct Shopping Centre in Birkenhead with cut hands and carrying blood-stained clothing from a local Burton's clothes shop. The store had had the window smashed in. Stephen and his friend, Gerard Milligan, claimed that the store window was broken when they arrived, and presumably with the alarm going off but they did admit to stealing £694 worth of clothing from the store. They escaped this brush with the law with just a £240 fine each. They each drunk approximately eight or nine pints of cheap beer at a local club before the incident and it was therefore judged to be crime of opportunity and irresponsibility. The next time he crosses our path after this, he was working part-time as a labourer. He met up with Chantal by chance in the early hours of the 13th of March 2004. He picked her up in Livingston Street. The reports that I've read said Livingston Road, but there isn't one in Birkenhead. There is, however, a Livingston Street, which is close to the Corporation Road red light area and very close to Newling Street, where Chantelle was living, which would definitely fit in with her going out to buy cigarettes. Wynne took Chantelle back to his home in Elmswood Road in a taxi, approximately a six-minute journey. They had sex and then spent time drinking, chatting and taking drugs together. Reports on this vary but at the very least, he'd been drinking and had taken cocaine. Chantel had also been drinking, and they both smoked heroin. They possibly also smoked cannabis as well. That's some cocktail. It really is, isn't it? Initially, Wynne claimed that he did not remember attacking Chantel, but had woken up to find her dismembered body in his bath. However, Forensic Alliance scientists proved that this was not the case. They had their work cut out for them, though, as Wynne had been systematically redecorating the house 
over the months following the killing. The scientists removed bath panels, took wallpaper samples and painstakingly studied the house to find the minutest samples of forensic evidence. Blood was found at the foot of the bed and evidence proved that the attack had taken place in the bedroom with Wynne then moving Chantal's body to the bathroom before starting his grisly dismemberment scheme. So, and again, this is amazing. What they can do with science... How the hell can you see where someone was attacked and moved? And I know. It's absolutely amazing. It really is. So why did he kill Chantal? The answer seems to be drugs. Wynne had apparently shown Chantal some heroin that he'd bought with the intention of selling on. Later in the evening, he suspected that Chantal had stolen the ounce of the drug and doubtless fuelled by his cocktail of drink and drugs already coursing through his own system, he launched a devastating attack on her. He initially struck her in the neck with a meat cleaver. Who has a meat cleaver I know, in the it, bedroom? He, he'd said this because um, he, he keeps a meat cleaver in his bedroom, apparently. He, he claimed in court that this was because he was worried in case he got burgled. Oh. Now, obviously, I would occasionally been slightly worried about someone breaking into my house but it's never occurred to me to keep a meat cleaver in my bedroom no i worry about people breaking into the house so what i do is i lock the door yes anyway he then proceeded to use it to sever her head completely he dismembered her body in his bathtub using a saw and then stored her body parts in a disused water tank in his attic after two weeks though the unbearable smell forced him to start disposing of her remains. I just can't imagine what would go through... Even even on that many drugs, what would go through your head that you think, I'm going to attack this person? Dismember them? Yeah. I mean, if he thought she'd stolen off him, your first thought surely would be to try to forcibly take it back. Mm. It wouldn't be, I'm going to attack them with a... Because she must have had it on her still. Well, that's it. Oh, it's just... It was just a wrong one. He used a large builder's bag to take parts of her body to Bidston Council Tip, and then he used a rucksack to take her head and arms to the local beauty spot of Royden Park, where he hid them in the woods. This is an area where I have walked so often with my children. It's, um, it consists of fields, extensive woodland and scrubland. It's a peaceful countryside spot. Lots of families go there, dog walkers. That's yeah, a beautiful place to go, isn't it? So it people is do tend to flock there. It's the place where they've got that Thor's rock in the middle as well as like a great big sandstone rock, which I remember climbing over it when I was a child. And <laughs> my children have since climbed all over. Yep. Um, I'm sure anyone from Wirral would know, it. Would know that. Big but red rock. It's that area and it, it's beautiful. But I wouldn't say that it was... Wouldn't be my first thought because it's never that quiet. If you're going to get rid of a body, you don't go to a busy, beautiful area. You go somewhere that's disused and quiet, surely. Yeah, I just, um, I don't understand it at all. Cause, um, obviously, I don't know whether he had a car or not. There's no way I can mm. obviously track that, but it's quite a way. Well, even... Without a car. Again, we've been there. Even if you've got a car and you get there, you've got to park up and then trek into the into the woods. It's still not easy, mind you, yeah. I suppose, if they're body parts rather than a body. Oh, God, it just doesn't bear thinking about it. be easier. Wynne kept Chantel's bloodstained clothes and the bedding from the night of the murder in five black bin bags. Here, reports vary. Some say in his flat, others say in the backyard. Either way, it seems odd to keep that when you so painstakingly dispose of an actual human body. He'd encased the murder weapon and other tools he used to dismember the body in a block of concrete. This included the meat cleaver, the saw and the large knife. This was found in his backyard. He was apparently planning to bury the concrete block in the foundations of the next house he was employed as a labourer on. God. So again, it's all premeditation, like previous ones we've covered off. It's... I, I think this is the thing that 
it annoys me so much about these things is you, you know you can understand that flash of rage that you know that you instinctively you might lash out not that i would ever lash out with a meat cleaver mm. but you know you can imagine somebody hitting out in anger yeah. but to plant i mean the effort to encase weapons in concrete and yeah. be thinking about where you're going to get rid of them and the whole taking a body apart I, oh it's just disgusting so Chantal was missing the case was cold Stephen Wynne was busy cleaning, redecorating the house and replacing carpets after having removed Chantel's body parts from his loft over the course of several months. That must have stunk. And again, the premeditation required for that. Yeah. Or even the, is it the post-meditation required for that? That, you know, after you've done it, you then think, now I'm still not going to do anything about this. I'm going to just clean up and pretend it never happened. Yeah, I suppose it's still premeditation because you're still thinking there's that arm that I need to get rid of. How do I get away with Yeah. Yeah, how do I get away with this? So how did he ever get linked to her murder? Wynne had set fire to the Shah Halal Mosque in Borough Road, Birkenhead, as revenge for the July 7th bombings in London. So not only is he a murderous bastard, he's a racist one as well. I was going to say, revenge for the July 7th bombings, which I doubt impacted on his life immediately in any way, shape or form. Yeah. In that, you know, he he had no personal connection to that. Mm. It's just an excuse. He discussed the London attacks with some of his ex-army friends and had texted one to say that he was planning to attack a mosque. He threw petrol at the door of the Wirral Islamic Centre and Mosque during the early hours of July the 9th. I now see why I am reading this section out. Bashirul Amud, apologies for the mispronunciation, the second imam was living above the mosque at the time and had to be rescued by firemen from an upstairs window. He was trapped by the flames. Wynne claimed that he believed the property to be empty when he started the fire. Which that's okay then. Oh, that's absolutely fine then. Don't yeah. worry about that. I think the horrible thing with that as well is that because the mosque had been the victim of some racist attacks already and that people had been th- throwing stones at windows, mm. they'd put metal um, grids up over all of the windows like to protect them, out. which meant that um, the imam just couldn't, he couldn't get out because of that. So, yeah, the firemen had their job trying to get, out, get him out of the building. But... Stephen did one thing, right? <laughs> His DNA was found at the scene of the arson attack, which led the police to him. To be fair, you say one thing right with his DNA. He also texted someone to say that he was going to do it. This is true. So, <laughs> not the brightest spark. <laughs> All that premeditation and careful disposing of a body, and then he's just blatantly telling everyone about his attack on a mosque. Although I don't think anyone came forwards to talk about that. I don't think anybody dobbed him in. I hate that phrase, but... But yeah, his DNA was found at the scene of the arson attack, which led the police to him. Luckily, his DNA was already on the police database. I wonder why. Armed police surrounded his property and arrested him on suspicion of arson. Andrew Menery QC defended Wynne in court, and he claimed that the arson attack was a deliberate attempt by Wynne to get arrested so that he could then confess to his murder of Chantal. Quote, His mind was bordering on being destroyed by the guilt he was experiencing as a consequence of committing the murder. End quote. Despite this, he initially pleaded not guilty, until eventually changing his plea on the 25th of January 2006. So his cry for help slipped his mind from his initial arrest date of July 14th, 2005, until over six months later. What a prick. Mm. When he was initially arrested for the arson attack, he was not linked to Chantal at all. The link was discovered when police searched his flat and found a 14-page letter he'd written in a bin underneath the kitchen sink. The letter referred to many aspects of Stephen Wynne's life. The police were most interested in a section that talks about the murder of a woman, though. In the four lines about the murder, Wynne used the phrase, quote, junkie whore. 
When detectives quizzed Wynne about this section, he cracked and told police, I murdered her. He was arrested and then told police about the circumstances of the night he had with Chantel, although he then claimed he did not remember carrying out the murder. Despite the lack of an actual body, the forensic evidence was strong enough to convict Wynne of the murder. Her DNA was all over his home. Wynne was 28 when he was sentenced for Chantel's murder. A father of one, his then three-year-old son had made regular visits to the property, even while Chantel's body was in pieces in the loft above them. Mm. I mean, that's disgusting as well. Yeah. For Chantel's family, though, they have still never found out where her body was left. Police have not been able to retrieve any of her body parts, and DCI Ray Galloway has said that due to the time since the murder was carried out, there is little to no chance of any of her body now being found. Her family held a funeral service on Friday the 14th of July 2006 at Our Lady's Church in Cavendish Street, Birkenhead, for Chantel. They buried the few shards of Chantel's bones that were discovered along with her clothes at the property during the investigation. Chantel left three children aged 12, 11 and 9. Wynne was sentenced for life with a minimum of 21 years recommended before he could be considered for parole. Jailing him for life, Mr Justice Bakum, again, great judge name, yes. said that on the night of the murder, Wynne had drunk a large amount of alcohol and taken cannabis and cocaine. He went on to say, quote, that propensity to consume such substances lies at the root of all that has gone wrong in your life, end quote. Wynne took this to the London Criminal Appeal Court, who later ruled that the minimum term was too long and reduced it to 18 years. Chantel's mum, Jean, has never stopped fighting for justice. She has channelled her loss into setting up Families Fighting for Justice and a charity, Ollie, spelled O-L-L-Y. Speaking about the charity, Jean has said that her grandson Joseph and his siblings were left distraught and feeling unable to talk about the loss of their mum to their relatives for fear of causing them further upset. They tried to carry on as normal but found it increasingly difficult. They needed someone else to talk to. Jean said, quote, Ollie is there to help children who have lost a loved one, either through acts of homicide, culpable road accidents or even illness. We want to provide some sort of support for these children who may feel that they have no one to talk to about their feelings. We want to let them know that they are not alone and teach them how to play and to have fun again. End quote. And if you want to know more about the work that they do for children in this awful situation, the website is www.ourlostloveyears.co.uk. For families fighting for justice, Jean first raised a petition in 2008 that she took to Downing Street arguing that, quote, life should mean life, end quote, for first degree murder and murder with intent, and also for tougher sentences for manslaughter. I'm not surprised she wants that after the no, sentencing for her son. The fact it was reduced on appeal as well to 18 years. I know. She is also involved in campaigns to stop parole for murderers who will not disclose the locations of their victims' bodies. I am totally in awe of all that she has managed to achieve from the tragic hand that she's been dealt. It's devastating. I mean, to lose a child at such a young age is horrific. When it's manslaughter or murder, manslaughter officially, mm. must be even worse. But to lose two, how devastating must that be? I think even worse as well, though, is that her sister had been murdered as well, in that she was the victim of domestic violence oh, several years prior to um, her son Stephen yeah. being murdered. So she, she lost three people in total to the hands of other people. 
you just can't imagine it. It's horrible, isn't it? I think um, a lesser woman would have just crumbled and given up. Yeah, no, I think you're um, right. But she's, she's definitely a fighter. You've also got an anecdotal story about this, haven't you? I have. Um, I was at a social engagement around about the time of the, the trial and everything. So I um, imagine it must have been all over the press up there. It was. Um, and I spoke to a police officer at the time. Okay. Who, I can't remember his name. But he said that they had gone to Wynne's door based on, obviously, the, the DNA at the mosque arson attack. Yeah. Um, and when they knocked on the door to speak to him about that, he opened the door, saw the police officers and said, oh, you come back that woman that I killed. <laughs> at which point they went, yeah. <laughs> and he then said yeah. about what had happened. Now, obviously, this is very I, I much would, anecdotally. I and, would love that to be true. And there is nothing, obviously, anywhere online to say that. But that is something that I remember mm. from the time of the trial. It's funny how it w- works out, isn't it? It really is. It's probably also worth mentioning that you put up on Facebook a map of the three main locations in the story because they are all quite close together. Head on over to Facebook so you can see for yourself. Just search for Sublime True Crime on Facebook. You should find us from there. And that is the case of Chantelle Taylor. Wynne claimed that he kept the meat cleaver in his bedroom as self-defence against burglars. Do you keep any weapons in your home, in your bedroom? And do you agree with Jean that murderers who don't disclose where the bodies are hidden should get tougher sentences? Yeah, I'm totally with her on that point, personally, in that if they're not going to disclose where the body is, they definitely should not be able to be paroled early. Yeah. At all. That's it. It's just off the table completely. What are your thoughts? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com. And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com. Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.